Well, I'm sure you've heard the old story about this guy who was stranded on a desert island. And after uh, many years, he was finally able to signal a passing ship. And the rescuing sailors uh, looked around and wondered why this guy's all alone, but he's got three huts on this island. He said, what are these about? And the guy said, well, the first hut is my house. And the second hut is my church. Well, what about the third hut, they said. That's a very painful story, said the castaway sadly. But that's where I used to go to church. (laughs) So you can uh, find something wrong with any church, even if you're the only member in it. Every church falls far short of perfection. But on this 25th anniversary of the worship place, I want to share some characteristics of a great church And uh, we're going to do that from the book of Acts. Uh, Acts describes what that first church was like. And there are five traits that I pray will characterize the worship place until Jesus comes back. Well, the book of Acts opens with the resurrected Jesus ascending into heaven and the Holy Spirit arriving to empower those disciples to be his witnesses from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And more people were being added to the church every single day as they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and breaking of bread and prayer. And all that excitement and church growth made the the rulers very furious. And so they they got some of the church leaders arrested and threatened them not to teach uh, about Jesus at all. But the church could not be stopped. And it continued to grow into the thousands and immediately became a mega church. And when we hear that phrase today, it means a big church of thousands of people, uh, which is what that was. Uh, The Greek word is megale. And uh, that's where we get our word mega. It's used multiple times in this passage we're studying this morning. It means not only great number and size, but also intensity or quality or degree or authority or ability. Mega, big. And mega, mega is a popular word today. Uh, people play the Mega Millions jackpot. You can go to a Mega Trucks Indie race, or Mattel makes Mega Blocks. You can shop at a Mega Store. You can take a, a Mega Vitamin. You can ride the Mega Bus. You can eat a Mega Burger and then have a Mega Death right after that. But the, uh, the Jerusalem church was described as Mega in ways other than or in addition to size. What do I mean? Well, our passage begins in Acts chapter 4, verse 32, and I want to point out to you five characteristics of a great church, a mega church. The first is mega unity, verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. Now, I want you to understand, this is not a small group of people. They did a head count already, chapter 4, verse 4, and they counted 5,000 men who believed. So it was bigger than that, bigger than 5,000. So how can thousands of people be of one heart and one mind? How is that possible? Now, my dad was a Baptist pastor, and he used to say, where two or three Baptists are gathered, there are five or six opinions. And uh, (laughs) that's not just true of Baptists. That's true of a lot of folks. That's just human nature. So how is unity possible when you have all these people. And by the way, uh, unity doesn't mean that we're all the same. 
That's not what unity is. Uh, if you all wear the same clothes, eat the same food, do the exact same thing, that's not a church, that's a cult. A uh, big difference. Uh, in fact, this first church in Jerusalem was extremely diverse. Uh, you, you read uh, in how it was formed, chapter 2, verse 5, there are different languages and cultures from every nation all in this church. So what united all these different people? Well, they agreed on Jesus. Jesus did. The resurrection convinced them that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh, and that changed everything. It made them one in Christ. Now, I used to play uh, trumpet in the marching band, the stage band, the jazz band, the orchestra. All those instruments need to be in tune. How, how does that happen? Well, when I was in orchestra, the oboe played an A, and we all tuned to that a played on the oboe. And, and so we were automatically in tune with each other. We didn't need to tune to the person next to us. We all tuned to that one note on the oboe. You don't get unity by trying to be closer to each other. Uh, unity comes when each of us focuses on Christ. That's how you get unity. And, and if all of us are tuned to Jesus, we'll be in harmony. Don't you want to be part of a church that's united? I do. I do. You don't get that by aiming at unity. You get unity by focusing on the risen Jesus. The second mega is mega power. Verse 33. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So where did that mega power come from? Well, this power was provided by the Holy Spirit. The church was being threatened. It was under attack. And in response, they didn't threaten legal action. They didn't protest. Verse 31 says, They prayed and were filled with the Holy Spirit and with the power to speak boldly about Jesus. Now, I know that uh, from just having things that you've said to me, uh, there are many of you who have not had much teaching on the Holy Spirit. We serve a triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. One God in three persons. The Holy Spirit is not an it. The Holy Spirit is a person of the Godhead. And the moment you put your trust in Jesus as Savior and you receive the gift of God, your body becomes a temple of the Holy Spirit. You are a living embodiment. The Holy Spirit lives in you. Uh, and uh, he, he gifts you. He comforts you. He convicts you. He guides you. He empowers you. And once you believe, the Holy Spirit will be with you forever. That's the promise of God. And so right now, if you're in Christ, you have all the power you need to do God's will. And in fact, the Spirit fills you with power to talk about the risen Jesus. See, it's not about having the courage, the power to, to rage against the world or to spew hatred at some people group. Uh, this great power enables you to point to the living Savior. And whether you're a church of 50 or 5,000, if we allow the Holy Spirit to fill us, in other words, to control us, he lives in us, to give him control in our lives, then it will change this community. And I always want to be part of a church that powerfully declares the resurrected Jesus. Don't you? Don't you? All right. Third, mega grace. Verse 33 continues. And great grace, again that word mega, great grace was upon them all. Every single one of us who believes is saved by grace through faith. The riches of God's grace have been poured out on us in Christ. And we're called in the scriptures to grow in grace. Well, what is grace? It is goodness toward those who cannot earn or do not deserve favor. Uh, that's what we have received from God, and it's the new domain in which we live if we're in Christ. See, grace means giving others what God gave you. 
You bless me even though I don't deserve it. You cut me slack even when I'm out of sorts. You love me even when I'm unlovable. You give me favor even when I haven't given you what I should have. That's grace. Pastor Scott Sauls tells about a first-time visitor who came visited his church named Janet. Janet uh, left her two boys in the nursery and went into the worship service. And after the service was over, Janet was waiting in line to retrieve her boys. And one of the nursery workers quietly approached her and said that there had been some issues. Both of her boys had picked fights with other children. And also, the boys had broken several of the toys in the nursery. And there in front of a, a room filled with other families and little children, when Janet got her boys, she screamed at them and yelled out some curse words. Well, there was an embarrassed silence, and somebody, people thought, well, we're not going to see Janet here again. And on Monday morning, one of the volunteers called the church office and asked if they had Janet's contact information. They did. And so she sent Janet this note. Dear Janet, I'm so glad that you and your boys visited our church. And about that little exchange when you picked them up. I found it so refreshing that you would feel freedom to speak with an honest vocabulary like that in church. <laughs> I am really drawn to honesty. And you're clearly an honest person. I hope we can become friends. Well, Janet came back the next Sunday, and the Sunday after that, and every Sunday, and eventually she became part of that church, and eventually the nursery director for the church. <laughs> That's grace. What God gave you, you give others. You return blessing instead of cursing. You love me even when I'm unlovable. I'm patient with you even if you're unreasonable. You give me a break when I'm at my worst. I honor you even if you don't deserve it. Don't you want to be part of a church that displays mega grace? I do. I do. And then fourth, mega generosity. Verse 34. There were no needy persons among them. From, for from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now you appreciate here that the church was so invested in each other's lives that they knew about the needs and they cared enough to help, radically so. They still had their own possessions. This was not communism. They still lived in their own homes, but they viewed what they had as assets to help others. And they did this, as it said, from time to time. In other words, these acts were the exception, not the rule, not the norm. And so when a big need arose, those who could help were ready to sacrifice for the good of the community of Jesus. Uh, Barnabas' gift was mentioned specifically either because it was outstanding, maybe it was the only piece of property you owned, or, or maybe just as an example. Uh, but this radical attitude among the people said, there's a need, and I want to meet that need. And so therefore, as it said earlier, not one of those thousands of believers lacked food or clothes or shelter. Now, we can't meet uh, every need in the world. There's no way we can but when God puts it in your heart to give something, he will also enable you to do that. See, God will inspire uh, and enable you to be generous for his glory, uh, whatever that looks like. Now, the New Testament makes it clear that our first responsibility after our own family, caring for their needs, is to care next for fellow believers. Uh, back in the third century, uh, the popular Roman writer Lucian, not a Christian, wrote about the behavior he saw among the Christian community. He said he was stunned. 
he said, by what he called their absurd generosity and sacrificial concern for others they didn't even know by name. That's astounding. Uh, not, didn't even know them by name, but they helped them sacrificially. It didn't make sense to them. Why would they do that? They were living in response to the resurrection of Jesus. There's no compulsion. There's no requirement. When God puts it in your heart to give, it's up to you to respond however he directs. Uh, share your assets in ways that expand the kingdom. I have seen this lived out in every church in which I've served. I've seen bills paid. I've seen cars given away. I've seen places to live provided. I've seen repair work done and houses cleaned up. I've seen wads of cash handed out to people in the community who were in need. I mean, there, there was one, we had a, a family who uh, uh, was going through a very difficult time. And uh, one of the leaders of the church heard about this and handed me a wad of cash and said, I want you to give this to the family. And I said, well, let's put it in an envelope and put your name. And he said, no, no, I don't want them to know where it came from. Just tell them. And it was, I, I was puzzled by this because I knew this family did not like this leader. They didn't like him at all. Uh, and he was wanting to meet their need regardless of how they felt. And I went and handed it to the father of that family and said, this is from somebody who cares about you, church. He was overwhelmed. I would have loved to have told him, but I, I promised I wouldn't, uh, who, who gave it to him. That, that's the kind of thing I've seen throughout my ministry of God's people meeting one another's needs. I've seen it here at the worship place and, and so much uh, in addition to that as well. You've given generously to relief efforts in Ukraine and Maui. You support our 17 mission partners. You promised hundreds of thousands of dollars to our building fund. We just need a two or three more million uh, to pay <laughs> for, for that. So I, I want to encourage you to do that. That 10.4 acres of land that we're going to close on on October 2nd, God has made that property available. And someday there will be a worship place campus on that uh, property. And that facility will extend our ministry to a new neighborhood and to the next generation of Sun City residents that God has given us responsibility to minister to uh, as we head toward that goal of 3,000 disciples. And if, to, to hear more about that vision, if you did not go to the first Forward in Faith dinner, please go to the next one, September 29th, uh, so we can share that vision with you. Uh, my job is to help you see how you can be part of what God is doing. My, my, and, and he's going to inspire your generosity, not me. Uh, he, you just need simply to respond appropriately to whatever God puts on your heart to do. Don't you want to be part of a church where people sacrifice for the glory of God? I do. That's a sign that the living Jesus is at work. The, the, the final characteristic is mega fear. In fact, it says great fear, mega fear, twice in this passage. Let me read it to you. You know the story. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received from the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You've not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then the young men came forward and wrapped up his body and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, How could you agree to test the Spirit of God? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. And at that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. 
Then the young men came in, finding her dead, carried her out, buried her beside her husband. And great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Now, let me just refresh here. This couple wanted to appear generous, more generous than they were. So they lied. They didn't have to sell anything, as Peter said. They didn't have to sell anything. And when they did, they didn't have to give all of it. The sin was trying to gain credit for a greater sacrifice than was made. Peter doesn't actually condemn the Ananias to death. Uh, I think Ananias just dropped dead out of fright. Uh, and, and hours later, when Sapphira arrives oblivious to what happened to her husband, she's given a chance to tell the truth, and she simply repeats the lie and drops dead. Now, can you imagine missing church that day and running into somebody and say, hey, how did, how did the services go on Sunday? People are dropping dead left and right. That's not a great marketing strategy. I mean, you're not going to put that on the church website. Say, come on and see some people die. And the reaction is exactly what we'd expect. Mega fear. Twice it says it in this passage. And that's exactly the impact that God wanted this incident to have. Because fake faith is a fearful thing. Fake faith is a fearful thing. See, and on the, God wasn't setting a pattern. He was making a point. He was making a point. Pretending to be what we're not is deadly. When we pretend to be more generous than we are, uh, when we present ourselves as being better than other people, when we put on a phony spirituality, when our worship is just external superficial practice rather than inward authentic passion for God, it is death. Many times I've quoted Annie Dillard's words about the church. She writes, Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews, unquote. What's what her point? Her point is that we are often too casual in our approach to the Almighty God. That we become nonchalant and indifferent to the Lord of the universe. But see, our God is a consuming fire worthy of fearful awe. That's what puts the mega in church, fear of God. See, a great church is absolutely nothing like an exclusive country club. A great church is not a helpfully harmless support group. A great church is not a mere social center for warm fellowship. A great church is not a coffee and cookie distribution center. A great church is not a religious facility for ceremonial functions. A great church is not a concert hall for wonderful music or a lecture hall for inspiring speeches. The church, scripture says, is the household of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. That's what the church is. And Satan is always trying to derail, distract, and disturb the church. Satan's strategy is try to get members to lie, to act like hypocrites, to live selfishly, to be inauthentic, to constantly grumble and criticize. But Satan cannot have the victory. Because of our mega fear of God, we live in awe of his majesty. And we're open and honest before the Lord and each other. And we know that we're not, we're, we're not a group that has it all together. We should know that. Uh, and we're a group that knows we fall far short of God's perfection and desperately need forgiveness. And we fear God and take sin seriously because of the enormous price he paid to deal with that sin. The Father sent his perfect son to save us from our lost condition. Christ took our sin on his perfect body, died the death we deserve to die. And by his death, burial, and resurrection, all who trust in him alone are declared righteous in the sight of God. That's the foundation we stand on and all other ground is sinking sand. 
And although the sudden death of those two people made the church and the community very afraid, you know what happened? The church kept growing. Grew like weeds. Uh, When you keep reading chapter 5, good things and bad things happen. There are miracles and persecution. There are blessings and beatings. There are complaints and there are converts. The church is scattered and more people get saved. The apostles are flogged and yet the number of disciples kept growing. This was an authentic community. And right now I can honestly say there are great things and some not so great things going on at the worship place. There are things that are miraculously encouraging and things that are kind of downright discouraging. But that's always a sign to me that what? God's at work. God's at work. God's at work, and Satan's also at work trying to stop it. So I know that things are happening. God is blessing us in ways beyond my imagination, and the enemy is trying hard to stop it, put an end to it. But as long as we keep the main thing, the main thing, the enemy can't win. Don't you want to be part of a church that isn't tame, safe, and predictable, but a church that turns the world upside down because we serve a God of awesome wonder? I do. I do. You see, The greatness of this church depends on how well we represent the greatness of our Savior. That's what it all boils down to. So let's never cease lifting up the name of Jesus. Now right about this time, two years ago, right now, Amy and I were in the process of making the decision about coming to the worship place. We were learning about you. You were learning about us. We were dating a little bit to see where this would go. And can you believe I had friends trying to talk me out of coming here? Can you believe that? Now, many, many people promised to pray that God would give us wisdom and discernment. Some of those were praying that I would come to my senses. Some men that I have known a long time, men I love and respect, said, Are you crazy? Are you crazy? Your days of effective ministry will be over. Don't you know? Why would you want to go to heaven's waiting room? That's what they called it here. all you're going to do is funerals. Now it's true that the average age of the worship place member is a bit seasoned, but God has not put any of us here simply to lounge around and play games all day while we wait to die. That's not what he's put us here for. He has given us a mission and a mission field. He has given us spiritual gifts and material resources to spread the good news of Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, you have a part to play in this great mega work. It might be behind the scenes. It might be praying or giving or encouraging or leading or serving or all of the above. But every believer has a God-given part, big or small, in this mission to make 3,000 disciples to serve every neighborhood in Sun City. As we look back on 25 years of God's faithfulness, we praise him for what he has done. But will you agree with me that God isn't done with us yet? Will you believe with me that as great as our past has been, he will do greater things than these? Will you affirm with me that no matter what the enemy throws at us, he will not prevail because this is the church of the living God? Sisters and brothers, together, let us always declare that Jesus is the Savior of the world and that by believing, you have life in his name. Would you stand with me and receive this benediction? God, our Father, we come to you in the name of the one you exalted to the highest place. Empower us by your Holy Spirit to lift up the name which is above every other, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
Amen.